Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you Father, we just want to thank you and bless you. We glorify your name and exalt you. Uh, thank you for your love for us. You show us that love daily, Heavenly Father. And Lord, uh, we ask for the revelation that comes from your spirit as we delve into your word. Um, let it destroy every stronghold the enemy has built in our minds that we might, uh, fight, that we might fulfill your plans and purposes for us. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Praise God. Amen. Today is the third part in our series um, about the new and your finances. And you know, uh, if, we, if we want to understand what we are believing God to do, um, it's that scripture in Romans, the 12th chapter and the second verse. Uh, um, that's, that's the scripture that really explains what we are believing God to do. Um, we say God is doing a new thing, so we have to believe that that new thing is in every area of our lives. And if you've been following the teaching, uh, what is happening is that a philosophy of life, a, a, a way of looking at things, a, a mindset, a, that we had is being totally shattered and destroyed. And God is building a kingdom mindset uh, with regards to this issue of money. Because God can't trust his wealth into the, and trust his wealth into the hands of people who have a mindset that is not a kingdom mindset. A mindset that has come in from the world and is very comfortable in the church, received and accepted in the church. So what that scripture says, that we shouldn't be conformed to this world, this age, but we should be fashioned after, uh, we shouldn't be conformed to this world, to this age, we shouldn't be fashioned after and adapted to its external superficial customs, but we should be transformed, changed, by the entire renewal of our mind. The scriptures that anchor uh, this season for us, uh, one of the things that the, the Bible says in Songs of Songs, the second chapter and the 13th verse, it talks about how the flowers whisper there is change in the air. And God is saying, change your thinking. Your thinking has to align with my thinking in every area of your life so that you can as the Bible goes on to say, fulfill God's perfect, uh, acceptable, and perfect will in all our lives. So it's a change of our thinking. And that's why you can't just listen to this message or these messages. You've got to take them and meditate on them and let them begin to shape your mind because we want to change our thinking. We want our thinking to become new and align with God. Uh, the Passion Translation of that scripture says, stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. And that's what has happened, sadly, even in the church. 
You know, a lot of messages that we hear, uh, they, they, they really just import what is happening in the world and clothe it in religious clothes, but give us the world's, con the world's idea. And the Bible says, let's stop imitating those ideals and those opinions of the culture around us. Let's be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how we think. That's what we hope is happening. A reformation of, on, of how we think is taking place. And when this reformation takes place, the Bible says it empowers us. It gives us that we are empowered to discern God's will, and then we can live, the Bible says, a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in his eyes. That's what we're trying to do. Today, I have a title for this message, Is Money a Tool or an Idol? Is Money a Tool or an Idol? You know, we love heroes. Everybody loves heroes. Uh, we love those who have fought and overcome. And you know, if there are any heroes in the Bible that, that I like, it's those Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, those boys really took on the culture of their time. You know, the king Nebuchadnezzar wakes up and is possessed by this spirit of pride. And so he builds an image of himself 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And he sends a word into the nation, a herald that, that commands everyone of every nation, language, peoples, that when they hear the sound of the trumpet, the sound of the ram's horn, horn, they must fall down and worship that image. And so that was the culture of the time, the worship of this image. And so whenever the people heard the sound of the horn, they would bow down and worship that 90-foot image of Nebuchadnezzar. But then there were these Hebrew boys who simply refused to worship that image. They said, we're not going to bow to the culture of the time. We're not going to, be, simply because everyone is in it, get into idolatry. We are different. We are children of God. Our kingdom is different, even though we exist physically in this kingdom. And in our kingdom... We don't practice idolatry. We worship no one else but God. And of course, because their position was countercultural, the culture ganged up against them. It's like the cancel culture spirit that exists in our culture. The moment you take a position against the culture of the day, the culture gangs up against you. And so they told Nebuchadnezzar that these boys refused to bow down and worship the golden image. And so he gave an instruction that they should be arrested and thrown into a fiery furnace. The furnace was so fiery, so hot were the flames 
that those who threw them in got consumed by the flames. That's how hot it was. But when he came to determine that it was over for them, he saw a sight that arrested him. He looks into the furnace and he sees four men. In his own words, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered to him, true, O king. He says, look, I see four men lose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Those boys stood against idolatry. They refused to bow to the God of the time. The Lord is looking for a church that will stand against idolatry. The Lord hates every form of idolatry. There is so much pressure to bow to the gods of the age. And there is no more, the, 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 in terms of pressure, there is no God that demands worship like the idol or the God of money. And if we are going to stand for God in this season, we have to be determined that we are not going to worship or serve that God and any other God. Because we must understand that God hates idolatry of any kind. The first commandment, Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before or besides me. If there's anyone who's going to be used by God, that person has to take a stand against the biggest idol of our day, and that idol is money or mammon. And you know, for those boys, it was very clear. It was a 90-foot figure, 9 feet wide, made of gold. It really was, a, it was up front right before them an idol. The challenge you and I face is that this idol that is, the, that is the most dangerous idol of our time is not 90 foot high, it's not 9 feet wide, it's, it, it's not standing before you shining. The challenge we face is that it is insidious, it is dangerous, it, it's, it's, it schemes its way into our lives. It, couch, it dresses itself in respectable clothes and that's how it has got into the church because it doesn't come saying, I'm an idol. It tries to sneak in and has done a good job at that. And the warning from God echoes in our minds, the warning from Jesus himself, Luke 16 verse 13, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So the warning from Jesus, he understood that this is going to be the contention of our time. That this God, this idol, is so good at subterfuge, is so good at hiding himself, is so good at pretending to be what it is not, that innocent people are going to find themselves worshiping this God 
before they know that they're worshiping this God. That God, unfortunately, is going to be worshipped from pulpits. When, when certain things are said, we don't realize it's the worship of God. And if you want to know where the God is being worshipped, just look at the culture of the place. There are some places, everything that is said is about that God, whether it's in the popular music, whether it's from behind a pulpit, and it is not encouraging people to stand against the God, but it's really encouraging people to receive from the God, put in religious language. You check the movies, it's all about that God. It's all about worshiping that God, and then you know that God has got that culture, got those people. It says, it is impossible, the Passion Translation, for a person to serve two masters at the same time. It can't happen. You will be forced to love one and reject the other. One master will be despised and the other will have your loyal devotion. It's no different with God and the wealth of this world. You must enthusiastically love one and definitively reject the other. The Bible makes clear that the primary idol that is competing for God's love in our hearts is money. It's not sex. That's, that's pretty high up in, 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 the, you know, in the hierarchy of idols. It's not power. That's pretty high up. It is money that is competing. And Jesus himself said the competition is going to boil down in the final analysis between this God and the God that we serve, Jehovah. And the worship of this idol of money finds its expression through covetousness or greed. The Bible actually calls it the disease of covetousness. Colossians, the third chapter, verses 5 to 6. This is our encouragement to live a new life. Yeah, we, are, we have got a new identity in Christ. And so this is Paul encouraging the church in Colossus. Now that you are, you are saved, you're in Christ. He says, live as one who has died to every form of sexual sin and impurity. Another idol. Live as one who died to diseases and desires for, for forbidding things, including the desire for wealth, which is the essence of idol worship. When you live in these vices, you ignite the anger of God against these acts of obedience. He says this desire for wealth, he says, is the essence of idol worship. And I'm sure you can see how we perpetuate it in the church. When, when you hear ridiculous things from pulpits about everybody becoming a millionaire, what are we doing? We are worshiping that idol. We've just couched it in religion. Take these three steps and you become a billionaire. We are worshiping the idol couched in religion. 
Because by those statements, we are creating an inordinate desire in people for wealth and for money. And the fact that it is said from a pulpit does not make it right. It might be said out of ignorance, but ultimately it is encouraging the worship of the God. Anything that encourages people to have an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions, that's what covetousness means. Or for the possessions of another person, that's what births greed in a people. And believe me, I could spend the next three Sundays talking about greed and covetousness from the Bible. The Bible warns against it. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 to 10. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. The Bible does not encourage us to long to be rich. It's not a biblical position. I hope that destroys someone's ignorance. Because it says people who long to be rich, who crave rich, richness, that's what drives them. They are thinking about it. That's the way of the world. That's what happens in a square mile that doesn't have God in it. Thank God for the Christians who are there. They are driven, possessed. Longing is a strong word. The result is that they are trapped, the Bible says, by many foolish and harmful desires. The inevitable consequence of that kind of heart is that the person is going to be trapped by foolish and harmful desires that will eventually plunge them into ruin and destruction. And it goes on to tell us, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's not just out there, it's very much, in, very much in the church. The love of money. And it goes on to say, and some people craving money. Sing the right songs. Lift hands in the right manner, speak the right Christianese language, attend every meeting, join all the prayer cells, but in their hearts, there's a craving for money. It says, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. He was not talking to unbelievers. He was talking to children of God. Saying in this church, some people craving for money, longing for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with true sorrows. He was merely confirming what Jesus said. You can't worship money and worship God at the same time. You will love one and despise the other. Whether you want to or not, your actions will lead you to that point, he was saying. 
And the irony is that it doesn't work. And even the people that are not Christians who are put forward as examples. Everybody wants to be Bill Gates. Bill Gates never longed and craved for money. He longed to bring a solution to problems. And when he brought the solution, it made him rich. We as Christians long to be a blessing. That's what drives us. We long to invest in people. We long to change people's lives. We long to make a difference. We long to reach the poor and the marginalized. We long to reach the widows. We long to bless those who have blessed us. We long to be a blessing. That is what we get from our patriarch. And as we are a blessing, we are working hard. We are building a business. At the back of our minds is that God used this business to change some lives. We are being promoted. At the back of our minds is that that gives me more resources and God can use it to make a difference. And as we seek to bless, and God knows that that's our primary purpose, God now knows that I can trust you with some resources because I will channel it through you to change lives. And you know, if Solomon says anything about a couple of things, you just have to listen. Yeah, so if Solomon talks about women, guys, don't be daft. Even, in, even if you tried, there's no way, no matter how tough a guy you think you are or you were, no matter the kind of Casanova you, you, Casanova you thought you were, 1,000 women is a lot of women. By the time you go through 1,000 women, we award you a degree higher than a doctorate in women. So when Solomon talks about women, listen. When Solomon talks about money, listen. Because if you think Bill Gates is wealthy, Solomon would have put Bill Gates in his pocket. So what does Solomon say about money? Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter and the tenth verse. He says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The man had the, he had the stuff. He says, I have it. Doesn't make you happy. I heard one motivational speaker say, let me find out for myself by getting it. Solomon says, I, I can buy anything I like. Whatever my eyes has set, set, set itself on, I possess. He says, let me tell you two things. Number one, those who love money will never have enough of it. Solomon didn't get the wealth because he went after the wealth. He got the wealth out of sacrificially worshiping God, hear me, and asking God 
to give him the grace to fulfill his assignment here on earth. And that's when, as you know, God said, I give you a blank check. I'm going to give you what you want, and I'm going to bless you ridiculously with money. That's why you can find an 85-year-old man who is in the departure lounge of life or just waiting for the plane to be announced. And he's still hustling. Still trying to cut one more deal. Still amassing wealth in a bank. Doesn't it sound stupid to you? You want to say, sir, even if you start spending this money now, a million a day, you can't finish it before you go. So what are you doing amassing more wealth in the bank? Because the man loves money, and those who love money will never have enough. That's why it's always one promotion to happiness. When I get that deal, I will be happy. When I get that promotion, I will be happy. If that is how you think happiness is coming, you will be pursuing it till you go and never find happiness. And because Jesus understood this power, this, this, this idol, and understood how greed and covetousness was the essence of the worship of this idol, he says in Luke's gospel, the 12th chapter and the 15th verse, this is just before he talks about the parable of the rich fool. <laughs> you know, when the Bible calls someone a rich fool, you better read that. He says, as he was speaking to the people, he says, be alert and guard your heart from greed and always wishing for what you don't have, for your life can never be measured by the amount of things you possess. It's a simple test. When you find yourself wishing for what you don't have, there's a challenge. You better check that greed has not come in. And then he gives us this illustration, which I would have loved to spend some time on. The illustration about a rich man, a wealthy landowner. His farm did so well, produced bumper crops. His barns were filled to overflowing from how well his farm had done. And listen to his mindset. He thought, what should I do now that every barn is full and I have nowhere else to store more? Now, I'm sure you know at that point he had failed completely. Your barns are full, sir, because there are people who are starving and God wants to use you as a conduit, sir, not to build more barns to store more for yourself. The blessing is so that others might be blessed. He says, I know what I will do. I'll tear down the bands and build one big massive band that will hold all my grains and goods. The mindset of the world is to hold, to store, to keep. The foolishness of humanity is exposed by this, by this parable. 
then I can just sit back, surrounded with comfort and ease, and I'll enjoy life with no worries at all. How many are in that position? We spend our time focused on trying to create a life that we will enjoy with no worries at all. <laughs> we forget that life and death is in the hands of God. We forget. Like Dr. Onus always says, it doesn't take much for heaven to call you home. Just send an angel at night, as Dr. Onus always say. They hold your nose. <laughs> That's what happens. Part of our philosophy is to understand the frailty of life. Part of our philosophy is to understand that God does not see this life as we see it. His focus is eternity. So listen to what God said to him. Can you hear God speaking? What a fool you are to trust in your riches and not in me. This very night, the messengers of death are demanding to take your life. Then who will get all the wealth you have stored up for yourself? This is what will happen to all those who fill up their lives with everything but God. One translation says, Yes, a person is a fool to stop earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. It's just about God. It's about what he wants, how he wants it. It's about understanding that we are stewards. Imagine a steward boasting about something he's been given to steward. The foolishness of humanity. It's about understanding that ownership is God's. It's a humbling thing to have an account in your name and I sign your name and know that it is not yours. It's a humbling thing to own a business and people say you're chairman, you're, you're chief executive, the business is doing well and people are heaping accolades on you the, the, because, of, because you're brilliant with uh, information technology. That's why this app is flying. And as they say that, you're, you're busy having a conversation with God and you're saying, God, they don't understand. I am your employee. They don't understand what it is to be a steward. Does a steward dare spend his master's thing without the master's permission? Can a steward arrogate to himself the positions that we arrogate to ourselves? Can a steward give in obedience to the master, master's instruction, and then take the credit for it That's why when people, when you meet people who understand this, when they bless you, they run away from the credit for it because they know they are just obeying the master. So how do we make sure that greed and covetousness does not seize our lives? Three antidotes, but I've run out of time. I'll do two today and next week I'll do the last one and that will be the fourth and final part of this message. But three antidotes. For us. Let's take them out of, take the first two out of First Timothy, 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter, verses 6 to 8. Please stay with me. This, this is really 
I feel the crux of this message. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So how do we, what barriers, what walls do we build against, pride, against covetousness and greed? And you know, covetousness, when you think about it, people think, oh, it, it, it's only a certain, you know, the people who have or the people who don't have. A anybody can be covetous. You can have poor people who are so covetous and so greedy. You can have rich people who are covetous and greedy. It's the essence of worship of the idol of money. How do we prevent it? How do we block it out of our lives? There are three antidotes to this disease. You know, the Bible called it a disease. There are three antidotes to this disease. We do two today. The first one is godliness. A Christ-centered life. A life that lives for Christ whose only aim and the aim that defines everything that that person does is to bring glory to God, to glorify God. A life that understands the primary purpose of money to advance the kingdom of God. Yes, it creates comfort and blesses us, but that is not the primary purpose. A godliness, godliness is a life that honors God with what God has blessed that person with. A life that is single-minded in this. It defines and colors everything that the person does with what God has blessed the person with. The person is Christ-like. And when we talk about Christ-likeness, that's what we are as Christians. They call them Christians because they were following Jesus and they were like Jesus. When you come across somebody who understands godliness, you are, you are in awe as to how Christ-like they seem. And with regards to money, what, what, what are the things you see? You see a, a, a moderation. You see a, a, them being temperate. You see them being simple. And you know one of the most Stunning things and attractive things to me. I've met a lot of very wealthy people. I've met those who are high on their own, the, the, the dope of their life. High. The walk alone tells you that the guy thinks he owns the world. <laughs> the way they speak to people with disdain, because, you see, they have the kind of money that can buy anything. So people become tools, chattel. They are impatient when things don't work. And they show you that they have the wealth. They are loud, arrogant, bossy, rude full of themselves. 
And you would think it's only people who have money. No, I've met a lot of people who have no money. Nothing, nothing. They can't rub two pennies together and they are the same. And guess what? Because they can oppress you, they look for people who they can oppress. That I, at least I can rub two pennies together. You can't even rub one penny together. They oppress you. Nothing Christ-like. But when you see people, they're, they're simple. They wear it easy. They understand it's a tool. They understand grace. It's a merited favor. It's not because I'm a great deal maker. No. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. God just caused time and chance to favor me. It's amazing. Amazing grace. It humbles them. Sometimes when you find out how much they have, you are in awe. I have a friend like that. I have many rich friends, but this, this particular friend of mine, he's just simple. He's so simple that when my wife met him, I told my wife about him. She said, that's him. I said, that's him. She was in shock. She doesn't look like all the others. I said, yeah, the others, we have to cope with them. What can we do? That's why when they went to arrest Jesus, Mark, they couldn't tell who he was. He didn't wear all his wealth on his shoulder, on his neck. Gold, 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 gold. Confused, gold. Because if he had been wearing so much gold, they would have said the one that is wearing all, the, all his money on his neck, that's Jesus. When they got there, they said, who is he? Where is Jesus? Because it's like everybody, it was like all the rest of the disciples. That's simplicity. We crave it. That moderation. We crave it. And so, of course, it's a blessing. Yes. He blessed you enough to have a nice house. Blessed you enough to have a nice car. Yes. I've seen someone step out of a Rolls Royce with simplicity. We were confused about the car. The person was, just, was not confused about it. We were thinking, wow, 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 wow. The person just said, the car. At, at my level, I, I bought it. And when you see that person's giving, you know that he can buy this car. By the giving. Not the one, you don't give tithes, you don't give offering, you don't bless the poor, you don't bless anybody. That you save all your money just to go and do higher purchase and intimidate us in Jesus' house. <laughs> I mean, look at, look at the fool. Fool! The car is not even your own. Higher purchase. You want to intimidate us? No. We can go and do the same. The, the 300 pounds a, a month. That's all it costs. Then they come on social media and somebody's intimidated. They say, my new car. No. Say, come and bless my new house. No. The house is owned by Halifax. You pay them to live there. It's the stupidness of the world or the stupidity of the world. So Christ like that. The second thing is a contentment. What is contentment that we don't have again? Being joyful with what God has given you. 
It's the opposite of greed. Being joyful. Not watching all these, all these celebrity shows that are showing you the house of celebrities and you disdain the one-bedroom house that God has given you. When you finish watching the show, you start to kiss your teeth. When you walk into your kitchen, your kitchen is, a, you know, you can't move to, to you, you know, your kitchen, you can't, you know. And the kitchen has been working well, you've been using it, but after you've watched the Kardashians' house and their kitchen is your whole house and half your neighborhood, you now hate the kitchen. And God is thinking, God is thinking, I blessed you with that. It's been working. How about some joy, some gratitude? My wife will tell you that I am addicted to being grateful to God. Addicted. If you hang around us, you will be embarrassed. Because I'm always telling my wife, we tell each other, God has been good. Ah, God has been good. Even in the days when these things were, were not there, and it's not even like they are there like that. But God has been good. Thank him for the bed seat. Because there's a homeless person who would give an arm and a leg for the bed seat. Thank him for the car. It's not, uh, what's the latest number plate of this car? 70, is that it? What? 71. 71, yeah? It's not, it's not 71, but you know what? It does a good job. Thank him. Develop a heart of gratitude. Thank him that there's no car, but that you, can, you have a travel card that can take you everywhere. And you have a travel card in a country where when they say the bus is coming, the bus comes. You're not in a place where they say the bus is coming and you're there till the next day, the bus hasn't come, and they rob you at the bus stop. Thank him. Thank him. Thank him. Joyful with what God has given you. And you know what? We can't just wish contentment on ourselves. We learn contentment through life circumstances. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, I have learned. So some of what you're going through is a school to teach you contentment. You want to go further. You want this, you want that. God says, I can't give you because greed is in your heart. You know, one of the signs that greed is in a person's heart is how you always look for the bad things about people who have more than you. Mm, I knew. Mm, uh, of course, why won't she carry that bag? We saw her in Park Lane. You know what she does. That's why they can buy those bags, those kind of people. Greed in your heart. You resent what God has done. And you know, let me end on this note. Because I might not say this next week. To understand your attitude towards money, go back to your upbringing. Everyone's attitude to money is shaped in their upbringing. 
And sometimes you have to destroy what was shaped. So if you grew up in a home where your mother or your father was always saying, we don't have, we don't have, we don't have. You grew up to be a nice Christian girl or, or, or guy, but a spirit of getting and keeping settles in you. Because you remember, we, the, I don't want to ever be where my parents were. So the only way is to get and keep. Your upbringing shapes you. I had to deal with that in a personal way. Because I grew up, had a very interesting life. My father never gave us money. He always told us to send a list to his office, his secretary. So I grew up thinking there's one mythical secretary somewhere in life that will always be giving me money. It's a terrible thing. So I became careless with money because I just assumed there's always, I just have to send a list. Until one day, my banker called me, said, can I have your cards? And he cut them up in front of me. I realized that inadvertently, coming from a family that provided, my father provided in a financial way, but the wrong spirit had got into me that had allowed me to become reckless, negligent with money. I have had to keep adjusting that spirit and chasing it away. It took roots in my upbringing. Am I making some sense? Yeah. Check your past. That's where, that's, that's where it was shaped. If you grew up in a home where there was the worship of money, you would just be like that. Because your father, mother always talked about money, money. When they talked about the neighbor down the road, it was about money that they used to judge the neighbors. That's how you become. So to enter the new, there's a lot of uprooting that needs to be done. Hallelujah. Amen. Were you blessed? Give God a clap of him. Hallelujah. Father, we just want to thank you. Now, next week, I'm going to do one antidote, and it is the big one. If you want to disrespect this idol, you want to strip this idol. You know, in African cultures, they say when you strip the masquerade, the masquerade loses its power. Next week, I'm going to show you how to strip the masquerade of money. How many are looking forward to that? Yeah, yeah. After next week, that idol will bow before you. Hallelujah. Father, we bless you. We glorify your name. And as we end, if there's anyone who hasn't given their lives to Christ, you don't have a relationship with him, I'd like to have the privilege of leading you in prayer. If you would just open up your heart and receive him. You're on any of our platforms or you are here physically. You open up your heart and receive him. Father, we just want to thank you and bless you. Almighty and everlasting God, we are grateful for the gift of salvation. And if you pray with me wherever you are, Heavenly Father, will you say that with me? I open up my heart. I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior today. 
I ask for the grace to be obedient to you, to your word, to your teachings. I commit myself to following you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome to God's family. God bless you. Look forward to next week. We're going to strip that idol, uh, make it naked and, and show it for what it is. Um, and I'll share that next week, and then we will be done with, the, with this teaching. God bless you.